So all of that comes from, I think, a culture of never giving up, staying determined. It was the night before we had our first reading and she pulled out, she dropped out of the reading. And I thought, you know, we can't do this without an actress. And we, we worked for like so intensely for that hour. While this idea took one day to, to actually put into action, I had the idea in the morning and I was, you know, I was feeling depressed and anxious about what was going on with the coronavirus. And uh, Brian Brazier has produced like everything. While I was on the project, I realized I never met them, but they had control over every aspect of the project. And I thought, that's kind of what I wish that I had. I feel powerless. I feel kind of like a puppet as an actor. The best way to preserve a mission is if the mission is demanding. You know, I grew up with a single parent, uh, mainly with my mother. Um, that's where I lived. And uh, she had zero help and zero outreach. I, my two biggest things are, are kids who are in the system, the foster system, and also AIDS. Um, so Equity Fights AIDS is a big program that I helped organize in Chicago. Um, and a casting director, instead of calling in people for each individual audition, watches these showcases and uh, would handpick people and just offer them roles in that way, I think that that would be efficient. Um, and I think that that would be much less dehumanizing and would contribute less to the depression of actors. Preventative care is so much better than nonprofit care. So for example, when we work with foster kids, it would be so much better if they weren't foster kids in the first place and the families were well-equipped, right? The process is dehumanizing and a lot of actors, young and old, suffer from depression. Um, again, it's the same thing as the school system. That, that means that something is wrong with something in the root of its uh, existence. Harvard attracts great minds and, um, and also uh, deep pockets too. Uh, <laughs>
I, I would say the number one thing is, I think for a lot of people, ideas come pretty quickly. It's, it's following through that's difficult, it's challenging. Um, so growing up, you know, I think that, that while this idea took one day to, to actually put into action, I had the idea in the morning and I was, you know, I was feeling depressed and anxious about what was going on with the coronavirus. I felt we needed to do something about it. And then I decided to uh, act on it, right? Um, then I proceeded to work an 18 hour day to launch and find actors who were willing to participate in this first process. But the um, determination that it took to actually uh, get the wheels turning and actually uh, have results and push myself to, you know, even as maybe one actor, we actually had it for that first ever reading, one actor said yes. It was the night before we had our first reading and she pulled out, she dropped out of the reading. And I thought, you know, we can't do this without an actress. And we, we worked for like so intensely for that hour. Um, so all of that comes from, I think, a culture of never giving up, staying determined. Just as simple as when I was a kid and my mother was raising me, um, you know, if I was in a class, like, for example, a piano lesson, she, and I wanted to quit, she would not let me quit. She would say, you have to see it through. You have to... Uh, work towards the concert or work towards whatever the common goal is. And, um, and that, uh, I think, set me uh, on this path to be able to have ideas and see them to completion. True. I mean, it's really great how you mentioned about your mother and how you got those genes of not giving up and keeping up with the determination to follow through despite of the adversaries which one faces. So right. I want to ask you that I've seen you talk about your mother a lot. So how much right. role did your family had a, in who you are today? How much role your family played in who you are? Because I've also seen in your Instagram highlights, you mentioned your father's three rules, which you were you know, talking about. That's right. About. It's yeah. so funny. I, I didn't even realize that was up. Um, that's right. I would say, so my mother is a much bigger influence in my life. Um, but my father had really good, like singular phrases that would come out. So that those three rules for life would be, that would be an example of something that he would have done, uh, really well. Um, my mother, on the other hand, was there with me. And, um, one thing that I, I realize about her, uh, style is she's, she's very hands-on, um, she was a lot more present than a lot of other parents. I grew up primarily, my parents were divorced. So it was just me and my mother. Mm -hmm. um, and I would credit not even 99%, but 100% of everything to my mom. Um, because I think that there was points where um, I could have turned out quite differently if she wasn't so hands-on with how she raised me. I mean, it's really great to hear the emphasis you're putting on your mother because I believe it's a mother support that is what helps us during our difficult times. And, you know, it's always been in my case also. Is my mom always supporting me because I'm interested yeah. in this public speaking and thing. She also used to take me to open mics and all that stuff where I could showcase this talent. And now, see, I'm talking to you here on this podcast. Right. Well, yes. I'm amazed at what you're even doing too, Parth. I think that it's really inspiring. And I, I do think that behind every great young person who's accomplishing stuff in the world, I would say besides a few outliers that are kind of like um, 
I don't know, touched spiritually in a way that it's hard to describe. I really do think that, that it's, it's almost inevitably, there's a parent who um, did a great job of raising the person and then continues to be a source of inspiration because, you know, even as an educator, kind of segueing, I, uh, I do, I work with kids and I volunteer quite a bit in Chicago. And I realize that um, so often a child is exactly the product of what their parents were. And that goes the other way too. So when someone isn't, say, as culturally prepared for the world, I think that also has to do with their upbringing. And that's why it's so important to support nonprofits like our reading is doing that step in and play a parental role for families that may be troubled in different ways, whether they're uh, children who are victims of abuse that need the help of a nonprofit or families that are victims of the economic situation and they have to work so much that they're not really parenting. Um, so nonprofits sometimes serve that role. True. And relating to this, you know, best thing I liked about your initiative is that you stayed in an interview. I believe all hospital needs funds, but I want you to go to a hospital that statistically had the most people in need. That's the reason you went for Mount Sinai Hospital, Chicago. I believe right. this would truly make people have more faith because nowadays there are so many donations that people want their money to go in right hands. I just want you to share with people that how much work you put in to ensure that the donations go in the hands of people who are in immediate need. Right. That's a great question. I think that um, when you volunteer in the nonprofit sector, if you have eyes and ears, you quickly realize that not all nonprofits are made the same. So I think that, that many nonprofits are function very much like a corporation and have the word nonprofit. And, uh, you know, I feel like a lot of donors don't really distinguish. They just look for the word nonprofit and they feel comfortable. Um, but even, you know, religious institutions, there's, there's just a lot of, um, there's a lot of, it, it's very easy for these type of organizations to forget what they're there for, for the sake of survival, because if they don't have funds to pay their own salaries, um, they, they don't have work. And so they prioritize their job, not the mission. Um, so when it comes down to it, I look for usually the best way to preserve a mission is if the mission is demanding. And so a hospital like Mount Sinai, you know, has such little funds and functions in such a bad community that people who are money hungry won't find themselves at Mount Sinai. They could find themselves though at University of Chicago, Northwestern, these huge hospitals and universities that have tons of funds because people who are attracted to great salaries um, will go to a place like that. Um, with that being said, again, I do think that um, Mount Sinai uh, is exceptional, but it's not the only exceptional program. And, uh, and there's many programs like it. Uh, it's just about making sure you look at it with a keen eye and find the outliers. True, that's really great. And before proceeding, I would also like the people to do check out actingforacause.org. Link would also be in the description of this podcast and see the wonderful work he's doing up there. Even I would be breaking my piggy bank to donate something for the families who have been affected with this pandemic. Because this is, I believe, is something we need to come together to achieve it. And another thing which I wanted to, was curious to know about is setting these kinds of initiative with such, on such a great magnitude. It's not a piece of cake. And running them continuously is also a tiresome but fulfilling job. So 
what are you learning or what did you learn from this whole process which is going on here which can be quite useful for a person who needs to start something influential like you did with acting for a cause yeah yeah um what did i learn that's a great question i think that sometimes the things that you learn the the reason why uh say say i wrote a book about what i learned right I think that anyone who's written a book, famous people, Gary Vayner, uh, Gary Vee, yeah. uh, well-known people, they write books. But you know, if if the true essence of something that you learn was being able to uh, be transpired through words, then everyone would be a successful. So I really think that the biggest learning experience has been a subconscious one. Um, it's something that I probably couldn't describe or I couldn't um, articulate in a book or in a podcast. Um, I think that it's, it's deep rooted and it can be kind of described in hard work and, um, you know, the, uh, when, when you find something that's discouraging and, and moving forward, these sort of general things, but, you know, at the end of the day, I think that it's just about immersing yourself in a stressful situation with a high risk, but high reward. And um, in this case, you know, I put my time on the line. That was all I did, and and uh, and try to get some some great actors for some play reads. Yeah. And uh, and despite there being some difficulty uh, and certainly long hours, it became an experience that I think that I will look back at this pandemic, and and if I had to describe it in one word, which I think a lot of people would describe it in terms of fear or hopelessness, I would describe it now in hindsight as a moment of hope, and. Um, and a time that defined um, my, you know, I think that uh, my reaction to difficulty is now to help. Um, whereas I think before it might have been a mixed response of fear and self-preservation, which oftentimes happens. That's why the stock market goes bad during these times, because people pull out of the stock market out of fear, not out of uh, practical need. Yeah. Um, it's, stock market crashes. And so I think that I used to have some element of fear in me. And I think that I'm coming out of this pandemic with a lot more hope than fear. Truly, that's really great. And one thing is that when you have such emotions, which are being immersed in such a great cause, it's truly sometimes difficult to describe it in words about how you feel about this whole thing. And, you know, right. after seeing your work ethic, it's an honor for us to have you as a guest. And I personally feel terrible to make you do this podcast. <laughs> no, 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 no. So, by the way, I, I felt so honored, Parth, when you sent me you sent me a message and then you, you kind of went cross-platform. And I've had a few different people reach out, but I felt like yours was just so genuine and compelling. Um, I think that, you know, in terms of these podcasts that are arising during the pandemic, I don't know how long you've been doing your podcast. If it's new, if it's been established for some time. Um, it's but I quite just new. It's quite new. So yeah. I, I feel like you're so articulate and charismatic. You kind of remind me of like, um, what's his name? Nas. Do you know Nas Daily? Nas. You should look him up if you haven't. I've heard about it. I'll surely look up to it. So I, I love it. He's, he's, a, he's a, uh, from a different country. He's from uh, Israel, Palestine. And he, uh, he does these videos that are one minute in, in length, but what, what sets him apart is his charisma and how articulate he is. And I, I like that about you. I think that you, Parth, you're very articulate. I felt right away when I saw you sent me a video and I just, I loved it. I was sold. I was like, I want to, I want to be on the podcast again. <laughs> True. I mean, we've been putting really you know, great effort 
like you are putting great effort in finding actors for this play reading we are also putting in great effort to finding out guests for this podcast and it's truly right. a kind of a persistent game to be honest with you a few days back i was quite you know, stressed out that no guest is coming on they are always yeah. delaying the time all that and i was really glad that you how you accepted this guest and how you saw the hustle which i was doing it was an easy yes i mean really it, it's it's so cool when um you know i think that the strategy that you took in in making it very clear that what your mission was you, having a clear mission is important that was super helpful to my actors i said we're going to raise money for covid-19 um that's that's it so you know right away that being the clear mission in your case we want to get people who have who share these traits uh who are are more about fulfilling their potential than anything um you have a wide net cast out there there's a lot of people who are fulfilling their potential um and then the persistence aspect is so important you don't know how many times i ended up uh you know reaching out to different actors and finding that um they would like like you said putting it off um i i would reach out to oftentimes i don't work with actors i work with pr teams and agents and managers and um there was just so many times where you could tell that they weren't prioritizing my project you know i think that uh persistence is something not to be afraid of because if someone's insulted by persistence that means that they're a bad person yeah true i mean that's really great and you remind me of the steve jobs video which i was see- watching the other day you know when i feel down he's one of my idol and i usually see his video related to following your passion and he said that it is really important that you do something for which you care about not only for the aspects of making money or gaining fame you do it something you're passionate about because it is so hard that a rational person would give up in that situation and i believe right. it's true in case of both of us even me the reason why i'm starting this podcast in the first place is not to gain listeners or get in monetized and all that stuff is to just inspire young people that see i i will provide you with all the knowledge you need related to performing arts and the people who are successfully achieving great heights in it and you need to realize your own potential and create something out of it which leads me to this question that you are an investor actor director producer activist and so much more i mean you are just one profession away from making jesus look down and say who is this man so i want to do really ask you that what qualities do you believe help you in realizing your true potential to be all you can be and what are the lessons that young people can take away from your work ethic and achievements yeah great question wow your your questions really dig deep i like that um what qualities so i mean you know the 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 series for those for those who are listening and don't and haven't necessarily seen it yet you you mentioned for them to go click on the link Every Friday we gather well-known actors, A-list actors from young Hollywood, so they're typically under 35 years old for these play readings. And um they're typically like two and a half hours in length. And so um and they're done out of the comfort of our home from Zoom. It it's segueing to the qualities that are needed in in being able to do a project like that. Um I think that the number one thing was a sense of um a sense of what the other person is feeling who I'm trying to bring in to work with me on a project so i'm thinking okay an actor typically 
will give two hours time to drive to a photo shoot or interview for publicity um, or to a charity event for, I mean, not just for publicity, but you know, it's, it's part of their PR team's mission is to get them moving on charity work and to do different um, tasks that help better the world and in turn also show what kind of person they are to the world. It's not about bettering their public image. It's about showing who they are as people and that they're not selfish. Um, because there's already a precognition, I think, in people's minds about what actors are. Um, and so there's a constant task of proving people wrong. And so I, I think that um, in knowing what the actors' goals were and what their PR team's goals were, I was able to put myself in a position where, um, I guess, a quality of um, empathy or just understanding what the other person's goals, goals are and saying, okay, I can fulfill that need. And it's the same thing with, you mentioned investing. Um, when I'm investing in real estate, I, I have that same quality. I think of what, what is the person looking for? So I don't know if, if perception is a quality, but I think that that's the quality that is needed. Um, then I think a great attitude is needed because you can be very perceptive, but you won't last. True. Um, you know, or be happy. Cause I think that the attitude thing is more about my own happiness. I think that people work with people with bad attitudes all the time. And I see at least a lot of successful older people with bad attitudes that I personally wouldn't, um, wouldn't stand too much, but I, you know, tolerate. And, uh, but I, I notice they're unhappy. I recognize that they're unhappy. So for my own happiness, a good attitude, um, and for the happiness of people working alongside me. Um, and I think that those two qualities dictate everything. Um, I think that, Organizational skills are good, but you know, I, I personally uh, have faults in the organization plane. Sometimes I'm like, you know, what, uh, what happened to this one offer that I sent out in the morning? Like I should have been more organized and responded to it right away, but I'm getting to it in the evening or a, a day later um, when I hold myself to a higher standard, my organizational skills are not up to par. I wish they were better. Um, so it's not just about, uh, you know, I think that there's, there's qualities that I have that are good. And it's, it's also recognizing that qualities that I have that are bad, uh, I don't have to wait for them to become optimal or great before starting any sort of endeavor. I just have to go into it and recognize what my strengths are and what my weaknesses are. Totally. I agree with you on that. And best thing is that you are both self-aware and have empathy towards others which is, I believe, Gary Vaynerchuk also puts emphasis on it, that how much empathy is important when you are trying to gain clients for business or else you're trying to upgrade your brand. It is really important that a person be a bit more empathetic. And I may, so heard you mention about your real estate. And yeah. I, I have a question regarding it, that during the first four years, I read somewhere that you built real estate by buying the three flats from your college fund. But at yeah. the same time, your passion for performing arts led you to return as a producer in the industry. So I marveled right. up to know that how this whole real estate thing started from acting to real estate and how were you able to gain all that knowledge? Because some people, believe me, might consider it risky also. That's right. So, so here's, here's how it went in terms of just direct timeline. So I started uh, high school with the goal of becoming a professional actor. And so I uh, was able to audition and, and sign with an agent right then. At, like it was like 15 years old. Um, and I, I worked on a couple music videos. Um, the most well-known is a 33 million viewed video called Make It Stop by the band Rise Against. 
I worked both as an actor and creative because they were consulting young people about what the project was supposed to mean. I thought it was very wise of them. They actually went to high schoolers because the song was directed to high schoolers. And so they made this beautiful story and it came out. And then I, I thought that my career was gonna take off because I thought that it was the coolest project ever. But I realized that the career is so fast paced and it's designed to you know, allow everyone to have their 15 minutes of fame and then be forgotten. And you have to be, I mean, 99% of the career when you make it past that first step of being in one project is keeping it going. Um, and so I went through high school and uh, worked my way to get into Broadway in Chicago. Um, because there's there's Broadway in New York, and then there's uh, the touring Broadway and uh, and Broadway in Chicago. And so I auditioned for Broadway in Chicago, and I got into their winter show, and it was 70 shows in two months, and it was a great grind, and I loved it, and I was like, you know what, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life for sure. And I got an agent, and I remember like that same year I auditioned for Star Wars, and I was like, yeah, I'm going <laughs> to you know get somewhere, right? And then um, I kept auditioning, 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 auditioning. I got a short film that was produced by Ron Howard and Brian Grazier. Ron Howard and Brian Grazier are very, very well-known producers. Um, Ron Howard is the director of The Da Vinci Code and the Star Wars Solo. Uh, he was a star in his, old, in his own right, but he's primarily a producer now. And uh, Brian Grazier has produced like everything. You can look up his name. And while I was on the project, I realized I never met them, but they had control over every aspect of the project. And I thought, that's kind of what I wish that I had. I feel powerless. I feel kind of like a puppet as an actor. And I realized other people were happy with that as an actor. But for me, I felt uh, deeply unhappy and very aware of that fact. Um, and so while I was acting and I had an agent, I wasn't going to college. And so I had this college fund sitting there and my mother uh, suggested, she, she was the one who suggested I didn't go to college, I went into acting. And she says, if you're gonna go to college for acting, you might as well go into the real world and see if it's something that you, you know, really want to, because it, college acting and career acting are quite different. And my goals were in career acting and I didn't necessarily love the educational system. I didn't wanna to be told by a university whether I was good or bad. Um, cause there's a certain, uh, desire for that. I think when you go to college and, and again, I, I'm a little bit counter, uh, authoritarian. And so I didn't want to be in that position. Um, I think that, that, that was, uh, kind of like a, I, I don't want to say that I judge everyone who puts themselves in that position, but I feel like the, the system is designed in such a way professors oftentimes aren't the people who are practicing in their fields. I'm not True. being taught by a, by Dustin Hoffman and Jack Nicholson and the greats being taught by someone who hasn't exercised acting outside of the college system. And so I, I really felt like, you know, I, I agreed with my mother and that it was a bad decision. We both decided on that together. And with all this money sitting there, we said, well, why not create some sort of passive stream of income? Because if acting doesn't work out, I should own a building and rent it. And this was post 2008. So we bought a three flat and it doubled in value. And we realized, okay, so, you know, we bought it when the market was low, it doubled in value and we're getting rental income every month, around $5,000 a month in cash. And I'm like, can I do more of this? Um, and then what you realize with real estate is that if you have great credit, which I did because my mom had great credit credit and you inherit the credit from your parent. At least that's the system that currently exists here. Um, 
you can buy a lot of real estate. They kind of, it's almost like a pyramid scheme. They allow you to just keep borrowing money off of the same, you know, like let's say I have $300,000 and I put it into a building. Then I can get a mortgage on that building. Then I can take a second lien position on that building for more money. Hmm. It's insane. You basically can keep reusing the same money to buy more buildings. And so I realized if I found good investments, I could just kind of keep buying them. So now I have about 20 properties um, that I built while I wasn't going to college and I was acting. And at one point I left acting um, primarily for, uh, I wanted to work in education. My mother is an educator and I wanted to uh, be a little bit more involved in this, the, the real estates. I also wanted to explore the world of stocks um, and then uh, when, you know, frankly, what I was doing was I started producing, I, I executive produced Finn Wolfhard's short film. I executive produced um, another uh, few music videos. I actually produced a, a Bollywood music yeah. video uh, called Sunraha. Did you see it? Yes, I've uh, seen it research. on your Facebook. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Sunraha. Uh, and um, you were kind I, of a pastor. You, know, you were kind of a pastor in it. Right, I played a little role. <laughs> right, it was filmed on one of my properties too. So all these little these these oh, projects, these music videos, I basically helped produce them or produce them directly. I, I produced a little Zan video. Um, they all crossed a million views. That's kind of like I, I work with artists that are already sort of established, but you know they're not like a hundred million views either. So I can kind of get in the door. Um, and then that's all from a business standpoint. But you know I'm always motivated by charity. So at the end of the day, while all these things were happening, I mean, the biggest motivator to keep building the real estate portfolio was not just a win. It was because I was working with kids on the west side of Chicago, and I realized that, you know, they rely on grassroots funding. And so if I become wealthy, my motivator was to become wealthy for them. Um, and, and, you know, if you look at my, my history of what programs I've worked with, um, I, my two biggest things are, are kids who are in the system, the foster system, um, or were, you know, adopted out of the foster system or just in low income Chicago and rely on nonprofit programs, but are kind of apart from their families and also AIDS. Um, so equity fights AIDS is a big program that I helped organize in Chicago, um, and worked day and nights with baskets. I was mainly like out there just getting donations, and getting donations and doing everything I could because I care about these programs. And the more that you work at the lowest level, um, so I learned a lot more working for Equity Fights AIDS, holding a basket after a show than I did when learning about the numbers and hearing you know, uh, people from the board talking. Um, I learned that if you have access to wealth, you can do a lot of good. And, uh, and so I built it for that. And that, you know, once you get a really pure motivator, you can, you really, you, you can, I think that's the best way to build wealth because you're motivated by good things, not by growth. Yes. Uh, and another thing I would surely come on to the educational thing, which you are doing. And one thing which is common between us is that we recognize the flaws, which are currently in our education system. And yes. this thing about investing was that you learned it practically more through practical experience. And this financial IQ is something which is not being taught in schools. And secondly, one thing which I wanted to was curious about is that 
when it comes to whatever you do you always try to make it beneficial not in terms of financial point of view but also for people try to make it more purposeful for others and do correct me if i'm wrong i've seen that in your real estate you have attached a really good cause um by providing some sort of bi-monthly rent for single moms That's would right. you like to talk a bit about that because i've heard a number of investing gurus talking about making large amounts of money through real estate and i've never come across something so unique and purposeful right. that you are doing thank you yeah thank you for being so detail oriented and actually asking the right questions yeah I, there's so many interviewers we can learn from you honestly <laughs> um, the, so that that specific line it's something that i like people to see because i think that more people should be doing it and um you know i grew up with a single parent uh mainly with my mother um that's where i lived and uh, she had zero help and zero outreach and i think that the easiest ways to help i i i think that preventative care is so much better than nonprofit care so for example when we work with foster kids it would be so much better if they weren't foster kids in the first place and the families were well equipped right so in the same way when i encounter a single parent that doesn't have perfect credit um and you know i i i think that again it's per, i there's a certain talent of perception that i think that a lot of people are gifted with and not many people put to use and so if i perceive and i i've perceived this pretty well because i've never missed a month of rent from a tenant that a person has their credit isn't great but they're a good person and they're sincere and um they're just living paycheck to paycheck I usually try to analyze their paychecks and see, you know, get them to qualify for an apartment they typically wouldn't qualify for by splitting up their payments further. It seems almost impractical. It it seems almost like like for for someone who's in the real estate business, they would think that it's impractical and I'm stretching myself too much for someone. And for someone out of real estate, they would say, "Oh, it's the same difference. They're still paying the same amount." But no, people are paid sometimes every two weeks on a Friday and um their credit is poor because they they don't they they budget according to that um and they're not good at saving money for the first of the month and so they get bad credit and they can't afford a good apartment in a good town um and so they end up going single parents end up going into bad neighborhoods where their kids are raised around bad influences and it's a vicious cycle and so i keep basically with a with strategic planning on how we uh, effectively pay rent i keep parents single parents uh primarily in a really good area um by really good i mean like extraordinarily good oak park is it's where ernest hemingway was raised and franklin wright buildings the architecture is beautiful um and so i keep these families in these neighborhoods by uh when they're looking for for some sort of alternate uh, alternative i i provide them uh an alternative within the same county rather than them having to find an alternative living situation elsewhere um i hope that that wasn't too nuanced or convoluted uh from the way that i described it um but I, let me give you a a good example before dropping the subject um let's say i have a tenant her name is ashley i'm just making up a name and she applies to to stay at an apartment that costs 1290 a month um it's uh, a third floor apartment and typical qualifying credit score is 650 or higher. The best credit is 850. Um 650 is still actually it's it's not ideal. It may be that they're leasing a car or they missed a payment 
or uh, their kids are, you know, have student loans. But then there's a notch below that, which is, you know, between 500 and 650, sometimes even lower. And these are people who miss payments regularly. And they oftentimes go into overdraft on their credit card. So these people typically, just because of the system that we have in place, get pushed into poorer communities. Um, so I typically give them the option when they're applying and they say, hey, you know, I don't know if, if you'll even accept me. I'm, you know, say it. 300 on a credit score. And it's because I miss payments all the time because I'm paid on the every two weeks on a Friday. And uh, I sometimes don't have all the money on the first. So I'll work with them and say, okay, pay me 600 and uh, 625 every two weeks on a Friday. And um, you know, if you miss a payment, I won't, you know, kick you out. We'll, we'll get it the following month or the following uh, two weeks from then on a Friday, I work with them. I communicate with them. I problem solve with them. I help them budget. And they usually end up much more financially sound because I, I serve as a landlord, but also almost like a financial advisor and helping them out. And I also, with my knowledge of nonprofits, sometimes get them to the right programs to help them with rent and help them with um, their needs rather than just kicking them out like a typical landlord will. Because I think that most people just don't know what resources ex exist. And that's the root of their issues. They don't have time to look for resources. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good thing which you are doing over there. And just I have a question related to it. I surely ask, just need to fix my hair. It's all messed up right now. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Do it. Respect. <laughs> As you're doing that, I'll, I'll mention one thing that, you know, a lot of this out-of-the-box thinking came from my mom had a lot of out-of-the-box thinking growing up and, and tying this mm -hmm. back into our first conversation. Um, I grew up with a lot of normal things like television, a car, uh, we lived in a nice house, but my mother was inspired by different groups of people. We lived near an Amish community. And, uh, and so when, when I was about eight years old, she threw away our TV and sold our car. And so we lived without a TV and a car. And then there was like certain other weird things that we tried out, like uh, not using lights in our house and just letting the sunlight, you know, guide us in our day. And these, these little things, I feel like, because they, they were not rooted in like some sort of lunacy, but they were rooted in mindfulness and trying to live a better life. And so, you know, each time a problem arises, I'm willing to, to say, okay, let's break the system a little bit and see what can we do that most people won't and introduce yeah. it, <laughs> introduce into the system. So, you know, one of the goals that I might have, and, and I'll, I, I don't like talking about ideas before they're done, but, you know, mm. I would like to see or be a part of the first ever production company to be completely nonprofit. So part of the goal of acting for a cause is to, I would love to one day make a film where the actors are in it for the art, the director's in it for the art, everyone's in it for the art and the money that's made from it showing in theaters or on a streaming service, instead of going to a producer and the chunk of a $3 million check, um, you know, I don't need that money. Like, like, you know, I'm, I'm an investor, I'm in real estate. I, I make good money and I spend it already on charities. So I would love for the, basically a contract to look like this entire project is done for charity um, in a similar way that we're doing this reading series. I'd like to see full fledged movies being made in this way. True. Um, I believe whenever you make that movie, I would love to be a part of it. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And one thing which I'm really noticing in your conversation is your mention of your mother and how much role she had to play in the kind of leadership skills which she imparted in you. 
And I yeah. just want to know, is there an element of tough love involved here, which has made you the person you are today? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. Oh, yes. Um, and even currently, and I think that forever, I think that even when I'm, say, if I do get married or, or something like that, I think that there will always be a, a system, a hierarchy where I have to listen to my mother because not only I owe her my success, um, but it's it's always been the tough love that, that really is what teaches me how to act. I think like it comes down to those moments where it's very clear that I'm wrong and she's right, that I actually learn a lesson rather than moments of, um, um, especially like, like when I was younger, I would say, like, I think that during my teenage years, there was a lot of, um, I wanted to be more of a conformist. I wanted to go to university um, initially, uh, you know, my family's history even. My mother moved here because of a university, University of Chicago. It honors the Fermi family, which we're descended from. And so, you know, one of the things that for me, I wanted to go to University of Chicago or Harvard or, you know, I wanted a big name. And my mom said, name five people that came out of any university you want to go to that you actually are fans of. And I could probably name like three. And then I like stop and I realize, well, like, like, okay, I can only name a few, but thousands of people go to these universities every year. So either the people that go there are already special or they're, you know, you, you think when you think college that they're, they're being taught these qualities that, that Mark Zuckerberg learned something at Harvard. But it, in reality, it's that Harvard attracts great minds and, um, and also uh, deep pockets too. Uh, <laughs> so when it comes down to it, when it came down to it, I, I thought, that I think that that there was a transition that involved a lot of tough love that changed my motivations to be um, more uh, wholesome in my goals and more uh, determined for the right reasons. I think I was always determined. I think that, that there, there's good qualities in everyone, um, but there's there's a moment where the parent can teach you to do it for the sake of money or for the sake of this or for the sake of that. And um, when you do something for the benefit of the whole world, I think that that's when uh, there's a chance to show true intelligence on a much bigger scale than just IQ. But like, you know, when you, when you do something with the intention of helping everyone, there's, there's a certain analytical intelligence that's involved and emotional intelligence involved. Um, and I think it's the truest expression of brilliance. Um, so in a sense, I mean, it, it's rooted in, um, it's not self-serving, but it's rooted in like a, a self-confidence um, that when, when you realize that that's the highest form of expression, when you do things, but you do things for the sake of, of others, um, then I don't know, I feel like, like even Mark Zuckerberg and, and Steve Jobs who inspire me are people who uh, didn't do things for the whole world necessarily. They did things because they were, they were, they were, they were very smart, but I think that they didn't use the full range of expression, at least until later in life. Like Mark Zuckerberg yeah. uh, joined and created an amazing initiative. Um, but imagine if he had those goals in mind from 23 years old. Mm. Um, Facebook might've been even more impactful. Um, you know, there was ways that, that Facebook itself became impactful before Mark Zuckerberg himself thought to create his initiative um, like the the revolutions in Egypt and uh, the throwing over 
Hosni Mubarak, which happened in many ways because of Facebook and the groups that Facebook joined together. But that was a very natural thing. That wasn't one of Mark Zuckerberg's goals when he when, when those things inadvertently happened. And I think that as he got older, he matured. Um, so maybe Mark Zuckerberg needed uh, Parth, your mom or my my mom. <laughs> to, it's true. Based based on this conversation, I, do you know your your mom? The qualities which she has and which she has imparted in you, and your actions as well. Remind me of a person who is currently I see as mentor. He is Dan Pinya. He lives in Scotland. He's the greatest personal uh, financial coach in the world, and he has this Dan Pinya, D A N P E N A. He is the kind of you know the symbolic presence of tough love, and his main goal is to build strong children. Because you must have heard this quote: "It is easier to build strong children than to repair broken men." and yeah. this is something which his main goals are and he has this main motto with which i also live by is be all you can be and i've seen that in your actions a lot he is also against the education system and worst thing which i find of it is the current thing which is called student loans in which these young students are trapped who are you know dreaming of a better future but the moment they leave their university they are burdened with it and i really like how you try to revolutionize education through the language and music school which is a non profit school as you shared in some interview which i read that not everyone succeeds in traditional schools with a student ratio of 30 to 1 i mean if you come to my school that, that ratio is somewhere around 50 to 1 it feels less like a class more like a stadium or an arena where half of the time is just spent in shushing off the children and best thing about this it is that you have made it affordable and hire teachers who have real life experiences in those subjects so i just right. want you to share that how you plan to make it even more interactive by focusing on extracurricular activities etc and etc so that children feel excited to wake up each day for school right so so my growing up my mom owned the language and music school which was initially an after school program where people would come for private piano lessons and private music lessons uh and private language lessons and um then it quickly expanded to a summer camp and to a full-time preschool and one of the thoughts that we had was what if we created a program and it doesn't have to generate any income like you said um where we create the education system that I would have wanted um and because we were working with some kids that were really in need we wanted to do it for them because they were absolutely failing in their educational system and we would have them after school and we would realize this uh or the, the educational system was failing them uh 31 30 to 1 teacher student ratio wasn't working um generic report card and being given you know like um as simple as bad academic not being able to show academic achievement yeah. because not because they were not brilliant kids but because the environment was so bad in that the teacher would not realize that they wouldn't eat their lunch so they would bring back to the after school program a full lunch and these these things that aren't details there's huge components of a day but that the parents and teachers in the system were completely ignorant of it was beyond us and we thought okay Well, it's it's an opportunity to step in. We can create a program that breaks even, and um, and you know that interview I think in particular 
that might have been a podcast with Disrupt Education with my mother. If not, there, there might have been a written interview um, based off of it. Um, but we go into detail about the education system that we created, and it's been going strong for a few years now. Um, we hire out people with real life experience. So, you know, um, we, we have uh, something called the, we have it like a core classroom that's led by my mother. And then we have a, another classroom called the homework cafe where we have individualized tutors and the kids leave that main class to go and work with individualized tutors and uh, rotate and get one-on-one -on -one time to make sure that their education is tailored to them and that they have uh, someone working one-on-one -on -one with them and also making sure that their eating habits are good. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're learning not just academic lessons, but uh, life lessons and how to balance their needs because that's how much the education system fails us that even at the basic needs level, kids aren't eating, drinking, um, they're coming to school you know, without being well rested, but then not being treated in such a way to help support whatever that issue is. Um, everyone's held to the same standard. And, and you know, imagine if our world was like that, like the, the adult world. If I, uh, if I had to hold everyone to the same standards, it would make zero sense because people have different capabilities and strengths. I mean, actually tying this back to your question about, um, you know, when I was talking about perception and having a good mm -hmm. attitude, you know, those are also in, in empathy. Those are things that are rooted in my personality. But if I had a completely different personality and one of the things that I was really good at was just being highly efficient and very analytical and um, working alone, for example, you know, I could have, uh, I think that that type of person would do horribly in my place, but they would do quite well if their initiative was calculating statistics for where, what areas need masks and how to get masks to them as quickly as possible. Um, and that would have been just as newsworthy um, from their end. So I think that, you know, another big point I'd like to make is that everyone is so different than looking at your own personal strengths is super important, not just, uh, you know, trying to have a good attitude and be perceptive because those tend to be my strengths. They might be your strengths too, Parth, but there's someone out there listening who, who might have a different set of strengths. I, I want to make sure that they, they don't feel like, oh, they were just dealt the wrong cards and they can't make a true difference. I mean, uh, first of all, I just want to say that the kind of education system which you developed, the kind of school which you have developed, it sounds so much more cooler than my school. And uh, one thing which I'm really, you know, thinking about was... Yeah. <laughs> what type of school do you attend? Sorry, Parth. Yeah, the, I actually attend. It's a private school. Okay. And, and, this, and, and so... What, how, how soon do you graduate? What's your graduating year part? Yeah, I'm actually in the last year of my high school. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. Do <laughs> um, you think, so you live on the other side of the country, is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or I, other side of the world. I live in the capital city of India. I'm in New Delhi. You're in New Delhi. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, is, is there a school that, is there some sort of alternative school that you ever looked into when you were in high school or even in hindsight? that you wish you could have gone to, or is there nothing that exists? Out of curiosity, they're in yeah, India. True, I totally understand your point. And this was also one of the questions while I was asking, because when we go in 11th grade, most people think of changing schools. To be mm -hmm. honest, most of the schools are like that. And I personally right. want to share that I'm a person, I just love performing arts. I also even started a YouTube channel. I'm kind of dropping it because in my last year of high school, I'll continue it in when I go to college or what do I do after this, where I used to do 3D animation and all that stuff. 
this was because to try to take an escape because these schools they just you know break, broke down my creativity inside my mind by putting us in a system where we are indoctrinated and we are told to memorize certain facts and information instead of really going into depth and feeling real things and there is one school which i remember but the thing there is that they focus equally on extracurriculars as they do on academic activities so the overall development happens so there is one or two schools but not that many right well i mean the the point that i think that that i i'm always interested when i talk to people and ask that question is because i'm constantly looking to try to find if there is you know what exists out there and it's so hard to find an alternative it's like really everything is just so uniform and it's almost orwellian in its scale that every school is the same bad system i mean if it was a great system or at least a good system with with some practical flaws um it would make sense but it's it's so incredible how widespread how i mean i have family both in in north america and in argentina and the same system is present there too and uh i think that something that would be interesting and i i think that that i need to independently study this a little bit more is how the education system was actually developed and spread so widely that it's hard to find something different and when you do find something different like montessori for example it tends to be uh designed in such a way that 30 kids can be in a classroom with one teacher it's the same uh flaws that you know sir ken robinson someone i would recommend to watch his ted talks he talks about how it's a system that cannot be changed step by step it actually needs to be completely revolutionized there needs to be new schools open that uh take that don't don't take ideas and apply them to them that they are ideas and they're ideas in action um and they're being started from the ground up rather than making changes to a system that is just so broken it needs to be and then restarted yeah. the best thing which i like about the educational institution which you have set up is you focus on the overall development on a, of a child which i believe is truly you know rare to see that in modern world and you were uh, talking about that how this education system started i believe i watched a video quite while ago and i came to know i don't know if it's 100% right or not that our education system actually arised out of insecurity when the ussr they were carrying out all these space missions marika thought we need to focus more on the scientific development of a child so they created all this framework where the child is told to uh go through this particular system but the main flaw was that system was not kind of what we can say renewed kind of improved with each and every year with new developments happening in western countries it much more much more developed but in our country it's the same books which have been carrying out since years and years with little or no changes and that's something that bugs me and something that is breaking down the creativity of children which i believe is something should be looked upon and you're doing a great job with it and truly i believe that through what you are doing i mean one day you can even stand up for becoming a president of the country like that's true about that. <laughs> <laughs> but definitely i think that um standing up to the president is a good way to do it i think that that making voices in the world of trying to find alternative education uh and making those voices louder um so people who are willing to advocate is very important um i know i, I want to do more of this i want you know, part of uh, what my role is in acting for a cause we decided to basically uh 
choose the EIF, the uh, Edtertainment Industry Foundation, as our primary charity to work with uh, because of its scale and because of its willingness to go to great lengths to make a difference. Um, and yeah, there's certainly differences in, in countries like I, I, you mentioned the sort of um, sterile nature of how mm. information is, you, you have the same textbooks ears and ears and ears, and that, that, that certainly is not a flaw that we have here. And you know, at the same time, I, I do encourage you to, you know, I think that the, while those details are very important, I think that that rat race of you know comparing, for example, that happens all the time here, where uh, the question isn't about whether the education system works or not; it's about whether poorer communities are getting the same funding as richer communities. And I think that that's when, when I talk to people, I, I like to say that's not the conversation we should be having. This conversation we should be having is why are uh, both poor kids and rich kids unhappy in a system that mm. exists? Um, it, it certainly doesn't have to do with funding. If both kids are unhappy, um, and and you know if you question how unhappy the kids are in the wealthiest communities, just look at the depression rates and how many kids are being medicated from a really young age. Um, that's its own issue. I mean, in India, there's a statistic that a student suicides or at least attempts to suicide each hour, and that's how serious that is. And there was even a movie, Bollywood movie, made by one of the best directors, Rajkumar Hirani. It's called Three Idiots. which was truly a hit movie released in 2010 i believe and i've rewatched it again and again and the kind of realities it uncovered is truly enlightening but the problem is still nothing has happened the only thing education minister thinks is that we can improve the system by reducing the syllabus that's not the solution it's about making the existing one more efficient right huge huge perfect wording there um what so what is what is this movie what is this film i i want to write it down now yeah sure it's called three idiots it may sound funny but the movie is a yeah. blend of uh, humor and it has a great purpose attached to it you can watch it on netflix or amazon prime with english subtitles although most of the dialogues are in partial or full english only and it's a really interesting movie to look out love for it. yeah and one thing awesome with, awesome i i love I, yeah Yeah true one thing which i was also curious about was do correct me if i'm wrong i read that you dropped out of high school to pursue a hollywood career in acting and you were left disenchanted with how hollywood was run your frustration when the industry led you back to oak park to regain control this is all past your investing experience when it started i'm talking about so can you elaborate a little bit on this because i believe there's some really valuable information which an aspiring person who wants to make it into entertainment industry can learn from and it can even be life saving for someone yeah yeah it certainly um so what what was that particular thing that disenchanted you about hollywood about hollywood okay so i think that that it can probably just be described in in the audition process mm-hmm. um i i felt like in in a world that is guided by art as being such a highly valued thing it's incredible how you are so dehumanized in an unnecessary way in order to be seen by these casting agents so what the casting agents do is they call if there's a role available for a young 20 something guy they call me they call parth they call 99 other guys 
we all show up to the same place with the same script memorized and only one person walks away with that role. Now, the problem with that is, um, you know, some people might say that that's a fair competition, but there's many layers to that. I remember 75% of the time, everyone knew who was going to get the role because that person already had a relationship with the casting agent or some sort of nepotism. So there, there's, there's a certain injustice there um, where if someone's already going to get the role, then stop wasting everyone's time is what I would say. And then there's the chance that you really shine and you do something, but it, it's so humanizing uh, along the way that I think that if we change the system to work kind of like, and this was in, you know, this part, part of this actually inspired acting for a cause where instead of auditions come together and they make videos, reading a play or acting through a certain scene and a casting director, instead of calling in people for each individual audition, watches these showcases and uh, would handpick people and just offer them roles in that way. I think that that would be efficient. Um, and I think that that would be much less dehumanizing and would contribute less to the depression of actors, because I think that a lot of actors suffer from depression. It has everything to do with the culture that we live in. And that may sound like it's coming from a place of entitlement or um, stress, or someone might say, oh, well, you weren't getting the parts, which, you know, I, I was for some and wasn't for others. And that's going to be a case for every single actor. Um, but at the end of the day, when someone like Robin Williams takes his own life, I, I mm -hmm. think about what his career looked like in the first 10 years. Um, because those are, those are years that define you. Those are your formative years. And, and I think that if, if the process is dehumanizing and a lot of the actors, young and old, suffer from depression, um, again, it's the same thing as the school system. That, that means that something is wrong with something in the root of its uh, existence. And then the other thing about, you know, this, this process of maybe doing some sort of online showcase, like what we're doing with Acting for a Cause, um, is, uh, you know, people get recognized, people uh, shine in different ways, and there's no memorization involved. I remember there, you know, I wasn't able to, it, it, acting right now is a rich person's game. You have to be wealthy in order to be an actor, uh, because you have to show up memorized. And so your day is spent memorizing a script for an audition you probably won't land, statistically speaking. Um, and so I think that there needs to be a much more efficient process if we want many things. Happy people in Hollywood, diversity in Hollywood, diversity of class in Hollywood, where people, you don't just have to be wealthy or live out of your car like half of the actors did to, that weren't wealthy, that got mm -hmm. famous. Um, you know, it, it should be much less dehumanizing, much less humiliating, humiliating in those first 10 years. True. I mean, I'm really glad to hear that those kinds of words and I truly agree to them because I read somewhere in a book which was written by a TV presenter that it's not about what you know, it's about who you know that happens, that counts for a much better part in this industry. And one of my goals myself is to become a world's greatest talk show host. And I mentioned you naming Robin Williams. He's one of the people whom I look up to, whom I watch clips even while I'm eating food to kind of learn how he used to think of all this stuff. And I want to ask this. I know I'm taking too much time. I didn't know this interview would get okay. extended for so long. Keep going, because, keep going. Good. Yeah. So I wanted to ask that. With your experience in this entertainment industry as an actor, director, and producer, how would you advise a young person who wants to make it in this industry that how should he approach it, especially if he or she is not from a good financial background? Right. So I think that, I mean, a, a huge part that, that unfortunately lies in the responsibility of the people who hold power. And it's the same thing as like the horror 
things in Hollywood. I mean, oftentimes it's like bad people need to stop acting bad. People who are harassing people need to quit. It's all in the power of the perpetrator. But if, if I were starting right now and I was not wealthy I, or connected, what would I do? That's a really good question in a position to be yeah. in. Yeah. I mean, even uh, I read about you that between the ages of 14 and 20, when you were constantly sending directors your resume tapes and all that. So how would you advise your younger self to approach this industry? In, in hindsight. So I, I think that, you know, what I did was I worked in it for a while. And then I, I uh, as I developed my values, I went into charity. And then I did build a lot of wealth for the sake of charity. And it's helping me create projects that involve acting for a cause, well-known actors and bringing them together for charity. While it's not necessarily using the money that I built for something like that, it's certainly using the resourcefulness I had to develop as a business person. This is, it's very out of the loop. I think that acting does require some level of funds raised. I mean, it's, it's just the reality of the situation. So if you're living in poverty, I would honestly say that to, to find a way to, to work through it and get out of it, if, if your goal is to be an actor, I think that if you're living even in a middle class or if you're living in a different country where you feel disconnected from the world of mm. acting, that's right. So, so there's a Swedish, Swedish YouTuber. He was making like tutorials on how to make film stuff and he was making short films and um, he ended up making a short film that uh, he submitted to a management company and the management company decided to represent him. And the management company ended up being so well connected that they got him a studio to make the film on a $3 million budget. And from that point, his career took off. It took 20 years to get there. But, you know, he continued for those 20 years, he continued to make short films and make tutorials. And now he's a really well-known director. He directed the movie Shazam. Uh, he also directed Annabelle. Oh. Um, so he, he's a very great director. I think that, that I think that listening to his videos is a really good place to start because he was not wealthy and he was he had big goals. And if you listen to people who went through that, perhaps something will inspire you or some you'll you'll realize that there's some sort of avenue. The problem is that there's not a direct path to success in this field. Um, the, the, and it's a, a field where even children of famous people have a lot of struggle in getting to the top. So it's like, um, it's like there isn't one answer. You have to be really good at what you do and then you have to put yourself in the right position for opportunity. And if you're not getting opportunities, you have to create opportunities. Yep. Those routes will vary. And I think that the key point is that you have, you have to love it. You have to love it. If not, you're going to quit. Um, and if you quit, it doesn't necessarily mean you don't love it. Um, it could mean that you don't love it. But sometimes if you quit, it's just that you love it so much that you have to separate yourself from it for some time, like I did. Um, and then you can return to it with a different perspective. Don't be afraid. And, and also make sure that you, if you're having success, I think that the biggest point is make sure to continue getting life experience because it's so easy to become detached from reality in this industry as well. These are, I, I, they're very general answers, but you know, I think that, that hopefully they're, they're constructive answers. These are, I believe, perfect answers. And it would surely, I learned a lot from this conversation right here. And I was also thinking about that you are in contact with such amazing and unique actors. What is that uh, one thing or several things which you find common in all of them, which makes them quite successful in their field? Okay, so here's the, here's the difference. So when I'm working with these actors, I'm in the position of a director and producer. And they're in the position of an actor and nothing more. 
And I mean, all of them are very talented in their own right. But of the 40 actors that I worked with, the one common trait was how easy they are to work with. They make themselves mm. easy to work with. They're super likable. It appears to be very natural for all of them. I think that's almost something that you can't control, but like maybe they're really controlling it inside of them. And there's a lot of smiling, a lot of yes, uh, without seeming overly positive, without being annoying. It's like such a balance, but like they're so, it's like, they're not the cool stereotype. They're not the teacher's pets. They're like no stereotype at all. They're just like this perfect person that, that exists only like in an imagination. And every single one of these actors is like that, except for one who was, who was born into the industry. And this person, I actually love him to death. He's a great actor. He, he worked with me on multiple ones. And he, he was a little bit more of someone who wanted what he wanted and would be very vocal about it. And, uh, but you know what, the one thing that was different from him than all the other actors is he's actually directed before. And so mm. I think that again, so if you, if not to be a director or a producer, the trait, if you want to be an actor is you have to be willing to kind of almost give up your, your, um, your, independence when acting with with a director and allowing them to take control at times there's a i think there's a tremendous amount of trust involved and there is a purity of personality that exists in all these people that they're not like i said they're not stereotypical in any way shape or form they're just good and so i think again i think that, that the root of that is great parenting i think that these people they they also don't appear to be nervous ever uh, there's just so many qualities to them that make them so easy to work with. They're also on time. They're all okay. on time, always. Uh, their timeliness is impeccable. I've never had one person show up late. And in the real world, everyone I work with shows up late or doesn't communicate. These people don't over communicate, but you know, if they're, we're going to have a meeting, um, similar to what you did, Parth, they will send something like, hey, we're, we're meeting in 10, yeah? It's just like everything is, is communicated in a perfect way. The timeliness is another very important thing. True, I, that's amazing. And especially in the JNR live stream, I liked how Rudy Panko used to manage the situation well in between the breaks you take, you know, kind of um, taking out the humor aspect. Rudy is amazing. I, I was actually wondering what, what was your what are the actors that you followed that brought you to acting for a cause and what were actors that you liked? Yeah, sure. I mean, I really like that how you combine all these actors from different series because some of yeah. these, some of these are really talented people and I watch movies and their series. One of them is Sophia Lillis. I watched her it and this recent series on Netflix. I'm not okay with this. Truly amazing. That singing part, which she did in the it's French great. accent. That was perfect. Natalia Dyer. She's also really amazing at what she does. Been watching her here and their acting clips. These all, and there's one another, Alexander. I really like the kind of delivery which he did. No kind of poise in his voice. It's truly amazing. He's great. He was a surprise guest for me. You know, I I wasn't actually as familiar with his work. I watched a little bit of Insecure, his show. (laughs) That guy's a heartthrob in the making. and, And it's so cool to see... You know, I, I, I think that, you know, it's unfortunate and I, I, I actually hate even talking about this, but like someone like Alexander wouldn't have been considered a heartthrob even 20, 20, 
maybe even 10 years ago, he wouldn't have been considered a heartthrob in Hollywood. And now Hollywood's opening itself up a little bit more to, you know, in a non-traditional, uh, you know, uh, Brad Pitt type, which is what they casted for years. Like, that's why, like, every actor looked alike. And uh, he's a real talent. Did you did you get to watch any of the other readings yet, or are you gonna are you gonna check him out after? Sure. I mean, I've been watching the Romeo and Juliet one, but yeah, I would surely love to check all the other ones. And it's truly a great experience to yeah. you know kind of see that live and through voice that how these actors use their creativity, like the gypsy scene which you did with the blanket was amazing. <laughs> Yeah, so, right. I just, so you know what? Yeah, that, that that's interesting. I'll, I'll I'll tell you just a short story because uh, when Alexander came into the first read, he was um, he was finding his character, and Alexander uh, actually, out of all the actors, when he, when we went live, like he started the rehearsal process coming from a certain place, and it wasn't. I, I would say it wasn't even necessarily what I wanted from a Mr. Rochester, and by the end of the rehearsal process, he got it. And then when Showtime came on Friday, when we went, we go live at four, he was like that got it times 10. He was just so perfect for the role. One of the things is when we, when we planned the gypsy reveal, so it was, I, I'm very familiar with Jane Aaron and plays. And so I had directed him that he should hide his appearance. And we didn't realize that we would actually be able to, you know, I realized that a lot of people in the live chat weren't sure which actor it was until he actually pulled it off and he wasn't the gypsy. I loved that we were able to pull something like that off of our Zoom. That, that came from both, you know, being him being so open during the rehearsal process and then him putting so much in a 24 hour period that when we did the actual show, he sold it. He made something that wouldn't work necessarily work. Yeah, so I just want to say that the gypsy reveal, I also myself was not able to figure out who was the actor. I thought it was Rudy doing it in the first place. <laughs> and then, right. yeah, and I would just like to say it's great to see that you are always in your element and take it from the AIDS Foundation in Chicago to nonprofit school, which you are creating and now acting for a cause and many more initiatives you've been a part of. It's a privilege to talk to someone like you. And we are glad that publications like Chicago Tribune, among others, are acknowledging your efforts. With this, we wrap up this episode and thank you all for listening. It would truly mean a lot if you'll share it with your loved ones, because this is something we want more people to know about and support. Because this man right here, he took a really courageous action with no self-interest involved. Just a vision to give this world a much better and a much more beautiful tomorrow. And we would give our best to see Acting for a Cause grow to even greater heights. Once again, the link is in bio. Feel free to visit the site and explore. Is there anything you would like to share with the people who are watching this podcast and convey something regarding this initiative or even the next play reading which you are planning? Yes. Um, so that's a great question. And I'll, I'll be announcing this. Uh, if, if you go to, you can subscribe at Acting for a Cause. You can also follow on Instagram at Acting for a Cause, the number four cause, and my personal Instagram at Professor Brando. We are, this Friday, we're going to be doing a uh, little bit of a smaller thing. Uh, every week I've had celebrities on. And so this, this Friday, I'm actually going to be working with a student who was born at Mount Sinai. Um, which is the charity we're supporting. And we're going to be doing a reading of the Little Prince. We were typically, we were actually not going to do anything this Friday because of Memorial Day, but we decided we want to keep up the, the system and do something live at four, even if it's not going to attract as much viewership. 
Um, it's a book that means a lot to me. And then next week, and I'll, I've actually not said this before, I'm going to be saying it on my Instagram later on, either today or tomorrow. Um, but we have uh, decided to go in the direction of doing something a little bit more modern. And I was talking to uh, Academy Award nominee Jason Reitman. We're going to be doing one of his screenplays, specifically Up in the Air, uh, which is uh, the screenplay he was actually nominated for. Uh, don't have cast details yet. We just found this out right before the podcast. I was literally like freaking out because it's, um, it's one of our biggest connections in terms of an individual screenwriter um, who is just, I think, incredible uh, in his talent and um, to be as generous to, to lend his voice to our project. Um, usually it's actors who are lending their voices and then we're using writers who are from a long time ago, Shakespeare, Jane Austen, uh, Charlotte Bronte, uh, and now we're going in the direction of Reitman. So that's a little announcement. And then I did want to also give a shout out. I think that Parth is an amazing host. And I think that all of you should really subscribe to his channel. Um, if you're someone who's watching this, uh, whether it be one of our actors or a producer or Jason Reitman or you know anyone who is listening to this podcast, you should really uh, give uh, Parth some of your time to do a, a podcast like this. This was almost therapeutic for me. I really liked it. Um, and I really do hope that you become what you'd like to become or that you get surprised and pulled in different directions like yeah. I did. Um, because, you know, sometimes one's talent is best suited in many places. And I think that this is an interesting life and world. Uh, and it's a fast paced world and you can be involved in many things and make a lot of difference and a lot of change. Parth, you're amazing. Everyone who's listening again, please subscribe to Parth, reach out to him, tell him how much you like this podcast, uh, show your love for him because he is really an amazing host. <laughs> True. Thank you very much for being a part of it. I mean, it's amazing to talk to someone like you. I'm aware that it's quite late over your place and we truly want you to take some rest and freshen up to showcase some more amazing live streams which you do with those actors. After, after a little bit more work. So I'm, I'm gonna, as I log off here, I still have a few things to, to get done in my office here, um, but, but we'll get some rest afterwards. Parth, thank you so much okay. for your time. Take care. Great. Thank you very much. And I just want to say, keep being yourself. And we hope you had a great time as well. Thank you very much. Absolutely.